Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. I'm a little sad today because we are saying goodbye to Nahum. He has become one of my friends through the process. I hope that You know him and know the book a little bit better, but I hope you know the God that he's been speaking of more intimately as a result of being in his book. But not to fear, uh, either next week or the week after, Lord willing, I want to introduce you to another one of my friends whose name is Philemon, and we will be looking at that book. And after Philemon, Lord willing, uh, we'll meet a friend named Ruth as we go through the book of Ruth. So that's kind of where we're headed if you want to start reading. to take us all the way through Christmas. Nahum chapter 3, let's pray before we begin. Father, we are living for this truth. We want to know you. We want to be with you. And we have another opportunity to fellowship with you this morning through your word. So I ask that you would send your spirit now, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. Even though we're seeing the destruction of a pagan city in 7th and 6th century BC, God, we know there's truth there for us. May we be reminded once again how you feel about sin because you are holy. Would you transform our hearts now even as we look at your word? In Jesus' name, amen. What follows is from a 2005 Reader's Digest article titled, There's a What in My Yard? Hair-Raising Tales of Animal Removal. Under the subsection titled, Fangs for the Memories, Andy Simmons tells the story of Bruce Means and the snakebite wound that he suffered on a remote barrier island. Asia has its tigers, Africa its lions, says Bruce Means, herpetologist and part-time snake remover. We ought to champion the eastern diamondback rattlesnake as this glorious creature that's one of the major unique animals of the United States. Interesting words coming from someone who was nearly killed by said snake. In 1993, Means was on a Florida barrier island when he stumbled upon a three-foot-long diamondback. A real beaut, he says, which he tried picking up using a small stick in his hands. Suddenly, a flash of movement, a sting on his right index finger. Means had been bitten. Almost immediately, his arms and hands tingle as the venom courses through his body. I just wanted to scream, holler, go ape, he says. Screaming, hollering, and going ape, however, have their drawbacks. Movement speeds the spread of venom through the body, but means is alone on a deserted island. And being a herpetologist, he knows what to expect. If he doesn't get help soon, he's going to die. Means has to move. The 2,400 feet back to his kayak feels like a convict's last mile. Means' legs are rubbery, and the tingling has spread to his forehead, mouth, and temples. After struggling to get into the kayak, he paddles to the mainland. Most of his body is now numb, and he's dehydrated. 
Reaching the shore means can't move his legs to get out of the kayak, so he rolls the kayak and slips out. He drags himself 80 feet to his car and climbs in, pulling his legs in by hand. Manually placing a foot on the gas pedal, he pushes down on his knee with his right hand, the only way he can put weight on the gas, and then drives in first gear to his office a mile away. Upon arriving, he exits the car by falling out of it, His arms and legs are now completely shot. Unable even to slither, he rolls over curbs, sidewalk, vegetation, gravel paths, until he reaches the door where he's found and taken to a hospital. Did Means' near-death experience change his opinion about this fascinating yet deadly animal, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake? Not at all. It will have been worth it, he says, if I can get one person not to run over the next snake he sees on the road. It's crazy. I'm sorry, Mr. Means, but if I see a snake in the road or anywhere, I am not going to try and save it. Means' story will not generate sympathy for snakes, for me or any sane person. But lest lest we think this guy is crazy, we do this too when it comes to sin. We cannot have an appreciation for sin or sympathy for it. We cannot look at sin like Mean said and say, it's a real beaut. It's a real beauty. But that's exactly what the city of Nineveh did the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. They had an appreciation for sin and wickedness. They thought capturing their enemies and dismembering them was cool. They would look at a pile of severed heads and say, now that's a real beaut. That's beautiful. That is some great art. The city of Nineveh would not be able to generate any sympathy from other nations when they experience the Lord's devastating judgment. In fact, we, we will see as we James read in verse 19, the last verse of Nahum, that people will be cheering the downfall of Nineveh when the Medes and the Babylonians come in 612 BC and wipe them out. People will be cheering their downfall, kind of like the way most sane people cheer the downfall of snakes. Sin, like some snakes will poison and kill us as its venom courses through our veins to our hearts. Nineveh's wound would be grievous. They would stumble about as the venom of God's justice coursed through their city streets. Our big idea today is simple and could be the big idea of the entire book of Nahum. It comes from Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen, his classic book, The Mortification of Sin. Here's our big idea for today. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That could be the entire big idea of the book of Nahum. Here's Owen's thoughts, talking about Colossians 3, which says, Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature. John Owen says, The mortification, or the putting to death of indwelling sin, remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have the life and power to bring forth the works or the deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. The choicest believers who are assuredly 
freed from the condemning power of sin, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The city of Nineveh needed a copy of John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. They forgot to keep killing sin after their repentance during the ministry of Jonah. Some hundred plus years later, God's judgment is coming upon them precisely because they did not keep killing their sin. Or you could say it this way, Nineveh is reaping what they sowed. All these years after Jonah, they began sowing and sowing, and now it's harvest time. I think comedian Fred Allen is right. Some of you may remember him. He said, most of us spend the first six days of the week sowing wild oats. Then we go to church on Sunday and pray for a crop failure. That's what Nineveh did. They had heard the message of God's grace through the prophet Jonah, changed their ways for a while, and now it's harvest time. Look at verses 8 through 10. Are you better than Thebes that set by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, her water, her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains. Thebes was the capital city of Egypt. She sat protected by water. She had many uh, allies. And yet the city of Thebes fell. The city of Thebes was destroyed. We know from history that Thebes fell in 663 B.C., to the Assyrians. So Nineveh knew Thebes because they are the ones who wiped out the city of Thebes. So why does Nahum dig out the old newspaper clippings from 663 BC from the Nineveh Gazette? What is his point in bringing up this historical fact that Nineveh knew because they were there? He's saying just as the city of Thebes, the capital city of Egypt, seemed To have all the protection in the world. Surrounded by waters, hard to reach, got many allies. They still fell. They were destroyed. And so would Nineveh. Nahum is saying, you're going to make the headlines of the newspaper someday, Nineveh. You'll be on the front page of the Babylonian Times. It will say, Nineveh, no more. But yet they sat there in all of their security. Nineveh too had water surrounding it. It's a picture of us when we dabble with sin and we we feel safe and secure. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody knows what is in my heart. And yet God comes to his children through his word and by the spirit to bring conviction. And sometimes the harvest that we reap will be devastating. Don't be like the city of Thebes. Don't be like the city of Nineveh, hiding away, feeling safe and secure in your sin. Nobody knows about what I'm doing. Somebody knows. 
Nahum is not finished, though. He's just getting started. Look at verses 11 through 13. He says, you also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Nahum will now use five uh, different images to describe the, the utter helplessness that will overcome the city of Nineveh. Nahum will describe how sin will come and kill Nineveh, how God's judgment will come and wipe out Nineveh. First, he says, you will be like a staggering drunk. You will drink the cup of God's wrath in judgment, and you will stumble around like a drunk person. Secondly, he says, you will be like a panicked fugitive who's on the run, who has no place to call home. Thirdly, you will be a trembling fig tree, like a tree that is so ripe, you just bump the branches and the fruit falls. He says, you are so ripe for God's judgment that when he sends the Medes and the Babylonians in 612 BC, you will just collapse. Then he says, Nineveh, you are like a feeble woman. He's saying, Nineveh, you are like a weak woman. Now, there should be some tension in the air at this point. Let me explain. When I say, when Nahum says that Nineveh will be like a weak woman, it does not mean that women are weak and useless. You ladies give birth. You are not weak. What happened in the Summer Olympics? U.S. women brought home more gold medals than the men. Women are not weak. In fact, there are a few women who could beat me up, and I don't mind saying that in public. (laughs) MMA fighter Ronda Rousey is tough. She gets in the ring and fights other women. If I got in 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 the octagon with her, I'll admit she would put me in a triangle choke or an arm bar, and I would tap, okay? So... Women are not weak. Some can beat me up. And some can beat most of you men up too, okay? But the point here is that men are better at some things and women are better at some things. It would be the same as if Nahum were saying that men are terrible shoppers. Right, ladies? Get an amen on that one. When Nahum says that Nineveh's army are like weak women. Nahum is saying what those boys in the movie The Sandlot said. Do you remember that scene where where the two baseball teams meet up on that field and they're riding their bikes and they start talking trash back to one another as little like fifth grade boys could do? And I can't remember what they say. It's something like, you know, you're a booger-nosed toe licker and the other team comes back and, you know, you're a a dog tick bleeding or whatever they say. They go back and forth kind of cutting each other down, talking trash. And then Ham Porter, the catcher for the good guys, the people that you've been following along in this story, he says, finally, you play ball like a girl. (gasps) Silence. The leader of the other team's like, what did you say? And he's like, you heard me. You know, tomorrow noon, this field. And and they play the game and, and the good guys win, to spoil the movie for those of you who haven't seen it. 
That's what Nahum is saying here in verse 13 when he says, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. He's saying, Hey, Nineveh, you play ball like a girl. Then he goes on to say, Your city gates are left open. You will no no longer be able to put the bars in place. The city gates will will break open and the enemy will rush in. You will no longer be able to hold them back. And it is a picture of when we dabble with sin and we think, I can just keep God at bay. I can stay safe in the city of my sin. And God is saying, you know what? When you try to resist me, You're playing ball like a girl. You can't keep me out. I love you too much. I will press and break through. Nahum's point is be killing sin or it will be killing you. And you will not be able to keep back the consequences of your sin. You will not be able to hold back and put the bars in your city gates and hold back the consequences of your sin if you dabble in sin with a hard-heartedness, if you treasure sin over Jesus Christ. Those living in Nineveh did not kill sin, so it has now come to kill them, and they did not embrace God's forgiveness, and now his judgment is coming. They sowed sin, and now they are reaping it. And there's no way to escape the consequences. Nahum will close his prophecy by highlighting the complete futility of any human effort to evade Yahweh's judgment. Look at verses 14 through 19. Keep your finger on the verse. We'll just make our way through here. All right, verse 14. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. Nahum mocks Nineveh here by calling on them to make more bricks and try to strengthen the city walls. Go ahead and keep making bricks. Try to reinforce the city walls. You are not going to be able to stop God's judgment. Then verse 15a, look, he says, There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. He's saying the sword is going to come and eat you the way that a locust comes in and wipes out a locust horde and wipes out an entire field and and then leaves nothing behind. He's saying as a fire comes and burns unhindered, it will devour you. He's saying Nineveh, you will be laid waste. Then in verse 15b, he says, multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Nineveh had multiplied themselves itself by plundering others and now Nahum says you can keep multiplying but it's all going to disappear just like the grasshoppers and the locusts that show up in swarms and then eventually move on. Nineveh had multiplied its ships but it would all go away. Their princes would flee. Everything would be gone. Now look at verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. 
for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. The shepherds, those who should have been caring for Nineveh spiritually, will be gone. The politicians will be gone. The people will be gone. Their wounds are grievous. It is utter devastation. There will be no Vicodin. There will be no codeine. There will be no morphine to ease their pain. And once the fall of Nineveh gets out on the associated press wire and the internet goes crazy and everybody's posting YouTube videos, the nations will begin clapping their hands, Nahum is saying. There will be celebration in the streets. Why? Because there wasn't a people or a nation around who did not experience Assyria's non-stop, never-ending evil. So as the morning TV talk shows start up on TV and the newspaper boys start screaming, extra, extra, read all about it, everyone would be clapping and cheering. Everyone would say they deserved it. Their punishment fit the crime. The fall of Nineveh is proof that you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. You may be thinking, so what? So what does the fall of Nineveh have to do with me? It has a whole lot to do with you and it has a whole lot to do with me. Nineveh repented at one time during the ministry of Jonah, and then gradually, slowly, they turned back to their sinful ways. We need to learn something from Nineveh. These crazy, gruesome, bloodthirsty Assyrians have left us an example. Some people are like, I don't like the book of Nahum, it's so bloody. God in his grace has recorded this book in scripture to leave us an example. Their lives point to the destructive nature of sin when left unchecked, when left alive and not killed. Understand this, Grace. Life is made up of 10,000 little moments. And in these little moments, we are sowing seeds. In these 10,000 little moments, we are either killing sin Or giving it room to wreak havoc in our lives. You don't just wake up one day and despise the Lord. It's not because you don't have coffee that day that you think, ah, I'm not going to serve the Lord with my life anymore. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm pulling out of church. I want nothing to do with those people. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm not sure if I believe what the Bible has to say to that matter. I'm not so sure the Bible's correct when it has a biblical theology of life and the sanctity of life, I'm not so sure I should believe the Bible when it says I shouldn't murder unborn babies through abortion. I'm not so sure I believe that. You don't just wake up one day and have that thought. You don't just wake up one day and say, "Uh, you know, gay marriage is not so bad. You know, it's a man and a woman marriage, yeah. You don't just wake up one day and have that thought. You just don't wake up one day and say, "Mm, I don't love my spouse today. It's a gradual, slow decline. Ask Nineveh. They repented under Jonah's preaching and then gradually started sowing seeds for the next few years and then they gradually slid away. Even the nation of Judah, the people of God living in Judah, God's people slowly turned away from Yahweh the sovereign Lord, that they were in, the one they were in covenant with. They didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll serve another God. Mm, let's serve Baal. He, he seems like a good God. Let's serve Marduk. 
or Tiamat. Yeah, let's serve those gods. It happened in all of the 10,000 little moments of life. Letting sin live. Having mercy on sin. Sowing here, sowing there. A, A little lie. A little glance at porn. A little bitterness harbored. A little unkind word spoken. And before you know it, you've got a crop on your hands. Before you know it, it's harvest time. This is what the people of God living in Judah needed to be reminded of as they heard Nahum's prophecy. And it's what we need to be reminded of too. Any descent into hard-heartedness, any decline spiritually, any stiff-arming of the Lord doesn't happen overnight. It's a seed sown here and a seed sown there. So be careful, grace. This could happen to any one of us. I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation because we don't believe that here. We believe in the P of tulip. If you're not familiar with tulip, Google it. We believe in all of the letters of tulip. We believe in the perseverance of the saints here. Once you are a believer, you are a believer forever. But you could get a hardened, calcified heart, and it happens day by day, moment by by moment, over time. John Owen reminds us of the need to be aware of the subtleties of sin in all of those little 10,000 moments. He says, spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, the policies, and the depths of any indwelling sin. To trace this serpent in all its turnings and windings. To be able to say, at its most secret actings. This is your old way and course. I know what you aim at. Spiritual wisdom is knowing your enemy, knowing your sin. Spiritual wisdom is finding out all the subtleties and the deceptive nature of sin, all the policies, the way it works. Spiritual wisdom is saying, ah, sin, I know your course, I know what you are aiming at, and I will have nothing to do with it. That is spiritual wisdom. And that's what Nineveh needed to know. And that's what the people of God living in Judah needed to know. They needed a reminder. They needed the reminder of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what today's sermon is. It's an exhortation to you. I'm exhorting myself to be careful because sin will deceive you and then it will harden your heart to the things of the Lord. Sin is deadly. 
Sin is sneaky. You have to die to it all day, every day, in all of the 10,000 little moments. Every temptation to sin, every indulgence in sin is one little moment. But it's not really a little moment. It is a significant moment. It is a big moment. And if you don't grasp this truth, then you'll relax and let down your guard And you'll be like Nineveh. And then 10,000 little moments later, you'll realize that you had been sowing all along and suddenly it's harvest time. That is the deceptive nature of sin. Sin does not show up on your doorstep, ring the doorbell and say, hello, I'm lust. I want to destroy your life. Indulge me for a while and you'll be sucked into my web and be trapped. I'll ruin your marriage. I'll ruin your family. I'll ruin your church. Or, ding dong, hello, I'm bitterness. Indulge me for a while and you'll be sucked into my web and trapped. And I'll destroy your marriage. I'll destroy your family. And I'll destroy your church. Or, and you can fill in the blank for any of these, ding dong, hello, I'm anger, worry, doubt, Jealousy, gossip, slander. I want to and will ruin your life. I will utterly destroy it if you let me come in. Sin doesn't show up and lay all of its cards out for you to sin. Sin is sneaky. It's deceptive. As John Owen said, sin will not only be striving... Acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting. But if left alone, if not continually mortified, if not continually put to death, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. This is my favorite line of John Owen right here. It was revolutionary for me four years ago when I read this. Sin always aims at the utmost. Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Listen, when lust goes ding dong on your door... It's not just lust. Lust's goal is adultery. Bitterness. Its goal is to destroy your life. Unbelief wants to grow up to atheism. It's not a small thing to fight sin. It is your very life work, Christian. You must understand when that sin rings your doorbell. It's not just lust knocking on the door. It's full-blown physical adultery. You fill in the blanks with a lot of it. Sin always aims at its utmost. It's not content with a glance at porn. It wants full-fledged adultery. It's not content to just say, have a little bitterness in your heart, a little anger. The anger wants to grow up to murder. Sin, sneaky. Sin is like a snake. 
Sin is like the story I heard of the hunter who saw a snake and instead of killing the snake, put the butt of his gun down on the snake and trapped its head. And the snake's body withered and writhed until it landed on the trigger and squeezed the trigger and shot the man. He lived, but his wound was grievous. You can't put the butt of your gun on sin because it will kill you. It will find a way to kill. We are all born into this world with a grievous wound called sin. It happened because a talking snake showed up in the Garden of Eden and started asking questions of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God, and sin and death entered the world. That's why you're messed up. It's why I'm messed up. It's why Nineveh was messed up, and it's why the people living in Judah were messed up. But God gave us a promise in Genesis 3 that Eve's seed, Jesus Christ, would come and crush that great serpent, Satan. That the snake would try to strike the heel of her seed, Jesus Christ, but that he would crush its head through his life and death and resurrection. And in the end, Revelation 20 tells us that that ancient serpent, The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever. Those who do not repent and confess, I am messed up, God, I've broken your commandments and your rules, you're holy, I'm a sinner. Those who don't repent and don't then trust in Jesus and his perfect life will spend eternity in hell with that ancient serpent, the devil, where you will be tormented alongside him forever. But those who do repent... And those who do trust in Jesus Christ will live forever on the new earth in a new and restored garden of Eden where there will be no ancient serpent to deceive us. And praise God, there will be no more indwelling sin. Don't be like Nineveh. Don't play with sin. Again, John Owen is helpful here. He says, let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that ever he began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. Saying, if you pick a fight with a snake and you just wound it a little, You're going to repent and wish you never messed with it. He said, sin must be killed. That means when lust comes knocking on your door, you get out your sword. You get out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And you don't just flash your sword at lust. You don't just raise your hand and it cowers away. You chase lust down. You grab it by its neck. You put your hand on its neck and you chop off its head. And when worry comes and you lay in bed at night and you're worrying and your mind is racing, you get up out of bed. You get a promise out of God's word. You get the sword. You put your foot on the throat of worry and you chop its head off. 
and you have to do it all night long and not get any sleep, then you do that. And if bitterness is taking a root in your heart and you hate someone at work or here, and, uh, you, when you see them, it's like nails on a chalkboard. You take a promise out of God's word. You take the sword of the spirit. You put your foot on the throats of that bitterness and you chop its head off. And if it gets up like a zombie again, you do it all over again. That is a picture of the Christian life. And if you're not fighting sin like that, you might not be born again. Maybe you are. Maybe it's time to pick up the sword. But it's something to think about. Be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. You do that through the Spirit of God. Romans eight thirteen. By the Spirit of God we put to death. That's mortify the misdeeds of the body. You do it with the word of God. Psalm 119.11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. You do it by gospel gazing. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. Beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You look at Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus, you're better than lust. Jesus, you're better than adultery. Jesus, you're better than bitterness. Jesus, you're better than worry and anger and doubt. Jesus, you are better than all of these things. Sin is lying. He's trying to trick me. Jesus, you're better. I'm not going to listen to you. I got my sword chopping your head off. Jesus, I'm looking at you. You're so much better. What? You're back again. I chop your head off. That is the Christian life. It's constantly putting sin to death. It's constantly sowing to the spirit and not sowing to the flesh. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Be sowing to the spirit and not to the flesh that you may live. Josh Moody says about this verse, the harvest will depend on what we sow. The flesh will reap destruction, a corruption of the rotting acts of the sinful nature. The spirit will reap eternal life. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. In other words, Don't think you can get away with it like Nineveh. Don't think that you can break out the mortar and rebuild the walls and put the bars in the gates. God cannot be mocked. It is important to see this analogy of seed and harvest in relation to our personal godliness because it is tempting to think that what we do does not matter in this life. I remember a famous story told of President Coolidge who, after hearing a particular preacher, was asked what he had preached about, and Coolidge said, sin. And when asked what the preacher had said about sin, Coolidge replied, he was against it. This fails the test of practicality that G.K. Chesterton, in typical wit, exposed when asked what book he would bring if he were stranded on a desert island. He said, Thomas's practical guide to shipbuilding. We need to know not just that we should be against sin, but also why we are against it. The answer is because there is a harvest coming. 
We are against sin because it offends a holy God. We are against sin because it's our enemy. It's deceptive. It's sneaky. We're against it because it wants to kill us. It does not want to befriend us, even though it comes to us that way. We are against sin because a harvest is coming. We are against sin because it is deadly. We are against sin because if we don't kill it, it will kill us. May we be a church that sows to the Spirit that we may reap eternal life. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Nahum. So bloody and violent and grotesque and gruesome. And yet, there is a message for us. We see the utter futility of trying to strengthen the walls of our heart that we might hide sin and delight in it and feast on it like a lion in its den. We see the utter futility, God, because you are holy and you cannot be mocked. There are people here who don't know you, God. Would you open their eyes now? And there are your children here, God. You love us, and yet we still try to keep you away. We try to build up the walls of our heart and break out the mortar and and strengthen the walls of our heart. We try, try to put the bars in the gates of our heart, oh God, to keep your love out, and it's futile. God, would you break through again this morning? May we see Jesus Christ as infinitely better than any of the promises of sin and may you continue your gospel transformation that you have begun in our hearts and in this church and then may you get great glory as we say no to sin and as we say yes to the spirit in jesus name amen Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.